Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our online audience, and I'd also like to welcome those of you who listen to this later on our YouTube channel. Um, this is one of uh, over 300 programs that we've done since the COVID crisis began, um, bringing you uh, the programs that we usually do live in San Francisco. Uh, we live stream them with authors and, uh, of course, all the political events that we cover um, now directly this way um, until we take care of this crisis and get back to normal life. So thank you very much for joining us. And today we have Operation Moonglow, uh, the history of Project Apollo, an, in an interesting history, not the kind of history you would expect. Um, and we have Teasel Muir Harmony, the uh, author, with us today directly from the East Coast, I assume. Um, and uh, we're, we're here to talk about um, what went into Project Apollo, how it got started. But before we do that, I'd like to see how you got started. You, you have a very interesting story about how you came across a file and, and, and that started and how many years ago that was for this project. It was far, far too many years ago for me to really admit, but I was um, I was at the National Archives in um, College Park, Maryland, and, and going through documents for a different project that I was working on. Um, and I, I decided that, you know, I had a little extra time. I should try to get a better sense of the context of um, American scientific programs in Japan at that time. So and that related to what I was working on. And going through boxes in, in the State Department folders, I found um, documents describing this exhibit of John Glenn's spacecraft uh, when, it, when it was on exhibit in Tokyo in 1962. And so John Glenn was the, the first American to orbit the Earth, and his spacecraft went around the world on this diplomatic tour. And um, reading this document in the archives was so surprising because the crowds were just enormous in size, hundreds of thousands of people in just a few days. And they waited in line for hours just to walk by this spacecraft. And it really struck me. Um, so I went and, and spoke to some colleagues, um, some space historians, and uh, they said that they were aware that that the spacecraft had gone on exhibit, but um, no one had written about it. There wasn't much that they knew to the story. And so I just started diving deeper and deeper and, and found out that it was actually really central to the larger story of um, the American space program and um, why Kennedy proposed to go to the moon in the first place. Well, it's very interesting, you know, because, of course, uh, you are uh, young and it's it, it didn't happen. You know, you're a historian looking back on it. But at least part of our audience, including myself, you know, we're, we're uh, young uh, children or teenagers or whatever, watching this whole thing unfold. And it, it really was um, a tremendous uh, enthusiastic burst. And uh, since I was a teenager at the time and I was always thinking about, you know, how can and it was during the Vietnam War, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I was always thinking about how can we divert attention from that kind of competition in war to a different kind of competition and couldn't space take that place? You know, so there were a lot of people thinking the same kind of thoughts. And that's why it made it really, really uh, crucial to watch. So um, in all of your files, uh, you you didn't ever figure out which Hollywood studio filmed the moon the shot, right? <laughs> <laughs> No evidence of that so far. <laughs> good, good. Okay, so let's go back to the 1950s when this was getting started. Um, and Eisenhower is president. And Eisenhower, having you know been the major, for those who aren't aware, uh, was the major um, military general leading the World War II against all the allies, against the Germans, and then became president seven or eight years later in the early 50s during the Korean War. So we had this ex-general, knew all about military expenditures and stuff like that, and uh, just thought that this would be a waste of money, right? I mean, that the, that the, the going to space, putting a man on the moon, it would cost billions and billions of dollars for no reason whatsoever, sort of. Exactly. So just as Eisenhower is about to leave office, he gets these reports, these estimates for how much it would cost to send humans to the moon. And um, so this is um, 60 years ago, just around this this time, this transition from the Eisenhower to the Kennedy administrations. But Eisenhower um, gets this estimate that it's going to be, um, I think uh, they thought between 30 and $50 billion, so more than it ended up actually costing. But he 
he was horrified by that. He, he's very physically conservative, um, and he made some comment how he was not going to hawk his jewels at the moon, uh, which was a reference to um, uh, the funding of Columbus with Fernand and Isabella. And um, he thought it was just going to be too wasteful um, in spending and, and, and just not worth that price. But he, he did think that space um, was important in general, especially when it came to national security. But human spaceflight and sending humans to the moon just just seemed like a folly to him. And uh, it, it was interesting you, you, uh, to go back a couple of years earlier than that. Um, you have uh, stories about how the Democrats started to maneuver in order to try to obviously win the next election against the Republicans. And one of the ideas they had was the missile gap. And the other one was that the Russians with Sputnik were getting ahead of us technologically. So I tell a little bit about, and, and Lyndon Johnson, who eventually became president, but was the Senate majority leader at the time, played a big kind of, you know, behind the scenes, uh, real political type maneuvering role. So why don't you tell us that story? Because I think that's very interesting because Kennedy and Johnson both played this game in a slightly different way. And Kennedy ended up beating Johnson for the, the election, but then made Johnson his vice president. And then they both, those two were both the ones that ended up running the space program. So. So exactly. So Johnson, I think, is probably the most uncredited person when it comes to um, the early the early years of space exploration in the United States. And he was really critical early on um, in the foundation of NASA, as well as um, then the decision to send humans to the moon during the Kennedy administration. But when Sputnik was launched, this was October of 1957, um, Johnson saw this as a perfect opportunity to... Um, to advance his party's political interests. So he thought this is going to be a great way to criticize the Eisenhower administration. And the Eisenhower administration had approached national security with trying to be physically conservative, um, to, to limit the amount of investment in the military and instead invest at home. His idea was the Cold War is going to last a very long time. And so what we need to do is invest in um, our economy. And, and that's going to be the best um, approach to fighting the Cold War in the long run. So um, this this Sputnik was a moment because of the the association of the satellite uh, with with larger missile technology and uh, the potential of the Soviet Union to launch an ICBM at the United States. So this was part of the fear and the association. Um, and so it, it provided the perfect opportunity for um, the Democrats to criticize the Republicans and criticize the Eisenhower administration and say, you didn't prepare us, you weren't investing enough. Um, in missile development or in satellites, and we're, we're behind the Soviet Union. And um, Johnson, in particular, uh, thought it would be a great a great thing to lead with. And this was a moment when um, the, the Democrats were uh, really split when it came to civil rights, the Southern Democrats and the and um, Democrats in other parts of the country. And so space was going to be their their issue. Um, and uh, Eisenhower, I mean, uh, Johnson just led the charge. He made it very public. Um, the critique, he he really thought this was going to be not only great for his party, but also great for the chance of being elected president um, in 1960. Uh, that was his hope, at least. Um, and he he was great with using rhetoric and comparing it to a Pearl Harbor or the Alamo. And and part of the way we think about Sputnik as a, as a shock um, comes from some of the ways that uh, the theatrics of Johnson. Yeah, that was a nice uh, element of your book to explain how some of the things that we take as if they were uh, endemic to what actually happened were actually PR operations by somebody or another. Um, that they that, that it really was a spin on what happened in order to try to get their way politically one way or another. Uh, I found that fascinating because, as I said, I was young and I took it all in straight as if science was was uh, driving the whole thing. It is, it is one of those. It, the way we remember this, the story, or the way that it was retold many times, I think, um, makes it surprising when you go into some of the details. Especially that um, both the Soviet Union and the United States had announced publicly that they were going to launch satellites during this period of time. Um, there was this this large international um, cooperative program or uh, project called the International Geophysical Year, and this is. 
um, countries around the world came together to study the earth um, between 1957 and 1958. And um, the announcements that both the, the Soviet Union and the United States would launch satellites as part of this effort uh, was made years ahead of time. And um, and so it was public knowledge that it was going to happen within this this relative time frame and um, the, the use of those satellites for atmospheric studies in, in particular. But it, it wasn't quite a shock to anyone who was following that news and following the fact that that was going to happen. And it really got amplified um, quite amazingly <laughs> over the course of a number of weeks following following the launch. Yeah. And uh, what, what's interesting, but not surprising, uh, is that both sides were lying a lot about what their uh, current situation was technologically. Uh, both exaggerated what they what they could do and already could do, uh, et cetera. So. And Khrushchev, and you, you, you go into the politics inside the Soviet Union, too, that Khrushchev was trying hard to hold on to power. Um, and, and so some of the things he did were, and the lies, exaggerations, were an attempt to try to keep his position in power in the Soviet Union, right? So interesting. Yeah, and and the dynamics, as you mentioned, with, with all these political leaders were really tied to domestic politics as well as international politics. Um, and these two things intersected and... and um, affected each other in great ways. So within the United States, it was with this eye to um, especially the next presidential election. And then within the Soviet Union, Khrushchev saw it as an important way to um, just hold on to, to power there. It's very interesting because it's like the, the Soviet Union, the communist uh, organization of politics and the democratic organization of politics, but the politicians in both places behaved exactly the same. It's like... <laughs> Well, is, is, there, is, there some, that I, is there some yeah. political system where the politicians don't show up? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I find somewhat funny about the space race is both the United States and the Soviet Union look to spaceflight to demonstrate um, the, the values of each respective um, superpower and, uh, you know, the strength of their political system. Um, but they were they were trying to differentiate between each other with the same tools with with the same types of demonstrations. So they were both sending humans into space to prove, you know, communism is better than capitalism or vice versa. Another part of the detail that you talk about was the PR effort on both sides. And and, uh, there was a lot of PR done that we would never do now uh, after World War II to win the hearts and minds, as they used to say, uh, of the Europeans or, or, or and then later the Africans. And, and uh, we had, we, we did it in a way which we would never do now, which is we supplied a lot of books of our best writers to a lot of libraries throughout Europe so that people could read our best writers. And there was a little contest between the French and the British and the Americans as to whose writers were more used, off, more often read in the libraries of other places. I, I just, you know, and, and the amount of effort that went into it, you, you talk a lot about the USIA background, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit later, um, of, of the PR problems and the PR uh, army that was employed in order to make the, the, the moon landing what it was. It, it didn't just generate all that interest itself. That was another that's a yeah and oh thanks well it's an important part of this story is this the priority given to what today we call soft power um and uh and you can see it it runs consistently there's a thread through the eisenhower administration and um into the kennedy administration johnson administration and even even nixon to an extent um and uh it's it's something that has received less sort of um, a priority, I would say, uh, more recently. But during that period of time, during the 50s and the 60s, it was seen as as um, essential to um, American American power, the United States' role in the world, national security interests. Um, and so each of those administrations invested heavily in, in public relations, public diplomacy, um, and uh, uh, had really, really extensive uh, programs relating to uh, promoting the United States abroad. We'll get back to, to the history. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because this thing about the PR is so crucial. There's one little story you tell about whether or not we should plant an American flag on the moon when we land on the moon the first time. And I thought it was fascinating that all of the different uh, advisors went back and forth on exactly what wording should be used and everything to try to make this a universal experience that's being accomplished by all of humanity. 
um, and that no way would we ever put an American flag on and, and try to brand it and so on and so forth. And in the end, you know, some senators said, no way, we spent all that money, you got to do it. <laughs> It was it was it was heavily debated this question should we plant an american flag on the moon and part of what was controversial about it is when you plant a flag somewhere it suggests territorial possession um and um the outer space treaty um from 1967 said no one can claim sovereignty of the moon and um there was a lot of concern that planting a flag would suggest that um and especially in this post-colonial moment the, the United States, um, well, at least the State Department and U.S. Information Agency did not want uh, people in other countries to to perceive the United States as a sort of um, a new a new form of uh, empire. So um, there was a lot of debate. And as you mentioned, there were other suggestions. Um, there was a there was some suggestions that you could plant a U.N. flag on the moon or um, the USIA suggested that you could even bring up soil from Earth and scattered around the moon from, you know, soil from every continent. Um, so they had a lot of different ideas uh, for what they could do instead. Uh, but but basically there was um, a, a lot of concern among members of Congress. And then um, and then also uh, people wrote into Congress saying, you know, American taxpayers paid for this this lunar landing. And so we should have our flag. And um, they actually uh, uh, it, it used it as a as a way to um, or the uh, the co Congress used the um, authorization bill and the the budget NASA's budget for the next year to to sort of influence the decision. And so, um, as soon as NASA announced that they were going to plant an American flag on the moon on the the first lunar lunar landing mission, then they got their appropriations. So, um, and it was written into <laughs> that the United States, if they landed on another celestial body, had to plant an American flag in the moon. Uh, um, so. It is it is a sort of a funny story, and it it, it really reveals a lot of um, sort of the debates around sort of the meaning and significance of the moon landing and and who that mission belonged to, um, how it was both American but also global. The power of the purse, as they say, you know, we're we're, we're paying for this. You have to do what we say. But the, but they also did, uh, and we'll go back into that later. They also did a lot of things very well in terms of you know paying attention to the psychology of it and how it should be done. And that that also is something that sounds anachronistic at this point. Um, that that we barely use the State Department or the diplomats at all, much less all this uh, attempt at making sure the wording is is uh, proper and that the people can feel that this was an accomplishment by everybody. Um, and the, the work that they did, you know, to say, uh, well, the Soviet Union has done this and, and this country's uh, scientist, Tesla, has done this, that, that contributed to it. And pointing those things out, you know, it's a very, it's a simple, it's, it's simple politics, but it's ignored so often. And I, I love looking at how that that approach to public diplomacy evolved over over the 1960s. But it it was seen as really essential by every administration. And and Kennedy was hands on, and Johnson was hands on with this, and and so was Nixon and Kissinger. Um, they they really saw this as as part of their um, their administration's priorities, and they saw public diplomacy and the role of the State Department and the U.S. Information Agency as really really important arms of um, American diplomacy. So let's go back to the late 1950s. Uh, Sputnik is up, and, uh, and then uh, the Americans launch a, a satellite later, and, uh, and then they try to focus on the fact that theirs is more scientific and more open, and we talk about it. You know, so there's a little differentiation, but still in second place. Um, and then uh, the Soviet Union launches a uh, uh, a man into space, uh, Yuri Gagarin. So that they are the first man in space. So the U.S. is behind on two big things, um, and they decide. So Kennedy's now president. He decides in order if they we've, we've lost the first two big things, what can we do to catch up? Exactly, and I'll actually just rewind a little bit um, to uh, when Kennedy first became president because it's almost exactly 60 years ago. And it's sort of, uh, it's fun to think of the anniversary in this moment right now that we're going through as a country. And um, 
Kennedy was briefed on the the future, the potential future of NASA. He also received a report on a potential um, lunar exploration mission, much like Eisenhower. And much like Eisenhower, he also thought it was too expensive. And um, his science advisor actually told him, you know, maybe you should even consider canceling the Mercury program. And this was the first um, American human spaceflight program that would just send one one astronaut at a time, either on a suborbital or orbital mission. And they hadn't had a flight yet, but um, he was really discouraged from pursuing human spaceflight. Um, and this was... Um, you know, January 1961. Okay, so that's the context of of that. And then and then things changed really really quickly uh, with Gagarin's flight, um, and then a week later with the Bay of Pigs invasion. This is a uh, a failed invasion of Cuba, um, and it was backed by the CIA. It was seen as a huge blow to U.S. prestige and um, really sort of um, shook things up. So that combination of those two. Um, humiliating defeats on the world stage um, for this new president. He he asked his advisors to find a space program that promises dramatic results that we can win. And um, that really makes it very clear what his motivation was, which um, the drama of space was important and, and being able to beat the Soviet Union um, was important. And um, at first, Kennedy, he was hoping that the U.S. could could beat the Soviet Union in these kinds of um, symbolic activities related to science and technology and in some other field that might be a bit more um, directly applicable to issues on Earth. And so he even suggested something like the desalination of water. Um, He thought that'd be more useful, but it became clear it was going to be space. And so um, Johnson led the charge um, and... uh, and he spoke to many, many people, many experts in the field, and they came back with this goal of sending humans to the moon um, and returning them safely back to Earth. Yeah, we think of it as just uh, U.S. science marching on, but it really was, you know, that uh, we were in a football game and uh, we were two touchdowns down and they had to figure out their Hail Mary pass. And it was, let's go put a man on the moon. And it's really, really quite an amazing um, shift in thinking. So, uh yeah, go ahead. It is, and especially when you take into consideration um, just how bold Kennedy's proposal was. So um, uh, there was the first American space flight, which, which happened on, on May 5th, 1961, with Alan Shepard, um, a brief 15-minute suborbital flight. And that's that was the extent of um, experience in human spaceflight uh, before Kennedy proposed Apollo. And Apollo uh, at that time was estimated, and it turned out to be um, uh, correct, about $25 billion at the time. Um, this was just just an extraordinary expenditure. By the mid-1960s, this was over 4% of the federal budget. Um, to put that in, into context today, and, and, and for many decades, NASA gets about half of 1% of the federal budget. So it was just the scale of it was, was immense. It was, it was much greater than the Panama Canal or the Manhattan Project. Um, so it was bold both in, in the idea of you know, what we're going to achieve, but then also uh, the, the, the investment as well. Um, and uh, but Kennedy saw it as really essential and essential along what he said was the the fluid lines of the Cold War. And a lot of it had to do with what was going to win hearts and minds um, and this larger context of um, not just a competition with the Soviet Union, but this idea that a big part of that competition was um, winning alignment with um, the alignment of other countries around the world. And so um, this is a moment when many, many nations um were emerging, uh, becoming independent. Um, there was the, the post-colonial movement, and um, and this was a moment that, that Kennedy thought spaceflight was going to be essential for the U.S.'s ability to step in um, to to guide um, those countries um, to to win that alignment um, and to ultimately further uh, the United States' position internationally. Yeah. So he he moved ahead and. We had a, a big flight that he watched. You know, I think we have a picture for that. Uh, I don't know if we, we can put the picture up on the screen, maybe. Yeah, the first picture with Kennedy. Yeah, that one. Um, if that's up on the screen, that'd be great. So you can see uh, the White House. And it's interesting that J- uh, Jackie is there uh, along with JFK and, and uh, you know, Vice President Johnson at the time. 
they they called Kennedy out of a National Security Council meeting, and he um, and they all crowded around in uh, his secretary's office to watch on this small television, uh, and they. They breathe a sigh of relief because if this flight had not been successful, um, it, it, it really would have called everything into question about what the next steps were going to be. All right. So Gemini, uh, for those who aren't uh, familiar with it, was in one of the earlier stages of um, which led up to the Apollo portion of it. And Gemini was an attempt to see how people can do in space, right? You tell a little bit about the project, how many liftoffs are where, I mean, people are used to now at one every five or 10 years. This was a, quite a different speed. Oh, yeah. It, w- it would have been a really exciting time to be following space flight. So uh, we, ha- we had Project Mercury, which was um, the first American human space flight program, sending one person into space at a time and first suborbital, then became orbital. Um, but we had to learn a, a whole lot more um, to send humans to the moon. Uh, and Project Gemini helped us do that. So this was two astronauts for every mission. There were 10 missions um, over the course of two years. And what they they needed to do is they needed to develop certain capabilities. And they also had to do a number of tests, especially biomedical tests on the astronauts. Um, psychological tests also for, you know, how, how are people going to handle long duration spaceflight or longer duration, up to two weeks. Um, and so they learned a lot about spacewalks and uh, rendezvous and docking and um, and just preparing uh, all the skills necessary for going to the moon. A big part of that was tied to the, the approach that was um, taken to going to the moon, uh, lunar orbit rendezvous, which required um, rendezvous and docking and, um, uh, and building, these, building up these um, skills. Why don't you say uh, tell everyone how what the technology is that we there's these rockets and then there's a, a capsule and there's another piece of it and you got to come up and down and uh, it's it's it, it it was it was complicated so I just give an idea about why they were testing everything and not just zipping there and coming back again. Yeah, so if we were just going to zip there um, and come back, you need a really, really big rocket and um, it would have been very difficult to build that in time and. Um, it would have been a huge challenge. Um, and so uh, there was this ingenious idea um, that was developed instead, Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, which um, uses a multi-stage rocket and a multi-stage spacecraft to achieve um, to achieve the lunar landing goal. And that saves on fuel and development costs, all sorts of things. Um, so what it entails is the Saturn V rocket, which is um, a multi-stage rocket, huge, larger than the Statue of Liberty, 363 feet tall, um, extraordinarily powerful. Um, And so, um, and on the top of that, there was a multi-stage spacecraft. So that would launch from the earth um, and the first stage would fall away and then the next stage would fall away. And then the next stage would put the astronauts into earth orbit for a bit. And then, um, and then it would um, reignite and then um, send, send them to the moon. Now, once they got to the moon, they would start orbiting the moon and um, uh, the lunar module would separate from the command and service module. So this this multi-part spacecraft and the lunar module would land on the moon while the the command and service module would continue orbiting the moon. Um, The astronauts would get out of the lunar module, walk around, (laughs) get back in. The top half of that lunar module uh, then would join the command module orbiting the moon, and then um, then they would return back to Earth in the command module. Give another, Hopefully that, that was a, a clear that was enough a, That was a summary. great explanation, yes, yes. No, no. I, I should have the models with me so I can show the different steps. <laughs> well, I think what, one thing that's helpful maybe is a little bit of, of, of percentages here. So we have this rocket with all the fuel in it. It launches. There's this tiny little spaceship on the top of it, you know, relatively the size of the spaceship compared to the rocket that launches it is 2 or 3% or... Something like that, right? Four or five percent, something like that. Okay, so, so something like that. Off the top of my head, I don't. I don't okay, know so but the fuel, that. you know, so the and, and so the majority of the fuel is used uh, to to get them in orbit. So they use gravity in order to get off, and then but they must need some fuel for adjusting and all that kind of stuff. And I know that in the story of the actual landing, they were getting close to not having enough fuel to both land and take off again. Um, so it, it, and and because it's such a small space, obviously you can't have that much fuel on board. So it didn't seem like it took that much fuel to do to leave the the module going around the moon to go down to the moon and come back up again. 
do you, I mean, do you have any ideas at like 1% of the total amount of fuel or is it? Oh, in comparison to, um, I don't, I don't have the comparisons. One of, one of the thing that's important to know about the lunar module is it was um, designed to be extraordinarily light and they really, really had to get down the, the weight as much as possible. Um, and one of the things that they, they did to do that is they actually took out the seats from that spacecraft. Um, and that not only allowed them to reduce the weight of the seats, but it allowed them to make the, um, the windows much smaller. Um, and if you can think about when you're sitting down in a car, you need a big windshield. But if you were standing up right against it, you would only need a small one to look through. And um, the weight of, of the glass was, was um, a significant amount of the, the, you know, contributed to the weight of the spacecraft. So that was one of the things that they did to reduce the weight. So the lunar module is quite, um, quite light. And then also an uh, important note there is that the, the moon has one sixth of the Earth's gravity. Um, and that makes a really big difference. It's much easier to launch um, something from the moon uh, versus the Earth. Well, when I read this thing about the fact that they took the seats out and they had to stand, now I got this, you know, I worked in New York a long time. I got the impression of people on the subway standing, waiting to land on the moon. You know, it's like, you, you, it's, 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 indig it's in, undignified, but it's, that's the way that they went down from the, they stood the whole way down. That's really quite interesting. I thought it was, I, I had never heard that before. Unfortunately, it wasn't too long of a, a trip and it, it worked out well. And it, because of the, um, the moon has uh, less gravity. It, it, landing on it is also it doesn't wouldn't have the same effect as as landing on Earth. Right. So, uh, and and uh, Armstrong actually landed it very softly. Even even though it was easy, he even did an amazing job of landing it softly. Right. That they, they said didn't they really didn't sink in very much. He was an incredible pilot and did a, did a very very good job under a very stressful circumstance. So not only this is the first lunar landing. Not only is it the first lunar landing, the whole world is watching. Um, uh, he all, The landing site that was chosen had some boulders in it, and so he had to take over man, manual control to find a different landing site. And um, it was really coming down to the wire, and there were also alarms. Um, there was concern. Um, there, there were these uh, two alarms that went off, um, and uh, basically they were saying that the computer was being overloaded, but and it was going to be fine. But you know, there was a question of whether or not it wouldn't be fine for until they figured out what those alarms meant. Um, and so he, uh, under under huge pressure, under very little fuel left, um, was able to land the spacecraft very, very gently. Um, and, and, and he uh, had been yeah. in in one of the earlier Gemini uh, flights, right? One of the important ones. And had had contributed to uh, a PR campaign afterwards, um, and uh, you, you hinted that he was partially picked to be the first one to land on the to walk on the moon because he was so good at the PR after the Gemini one. That was one of the qualifications. Exactly. So um, Armstrong was was really quite talented when it came to diplomacy. It came naturally to him. And then he also put in some effort, too. So um, in, in the 1960s, he went on this tour of South America. And um, in addition to getting the briefings, um, some background about where he was going, he took the effort to to learn um, Spanish and he read about the history of the different places and decided to incorporate that history into his speeches and, and put a lot of work in, in figuring out how to um, connect what he was doing in space with people that he met with. And um, it resonated with people. And um, uh, his biographer has suggested that was part of what led to the decision to give him the opportunity to be the first person to walk on the moon. It was, again, another insight into the whole uh, game with the astronauts that there might have been a lot of politics involved inside the choices and why the choices were made and who gets to do which one thing, which is perfectly understandable, but nobody, you know, because every human institution operates that way. But you, when you think about the space program, you think that would never happen there. You know, so. Yeah, there were, there were, I, I could go into it. I have a, I fear it would be probably more information that anyone would want about how Armstrong got that, that role. Um, and, uh, some of the, well, I wouldn't say controversy, but, um, there was, um, some frustration. I think it was difficult, um, for, for Buzz Aldrin, his crewmate who didn't get that opportunity. He was the second person and, um, but uh, Armstrong had demonstrated just uh, incredible abilities um, and cool-headedness and talents when it came to diplomacy during the the Gemini program, and so um, he was a, he was a great choice. Um, they had also 
considered um, Frank Borman, who was the commander of the Apollo 8 mission. Um, that was the first lunar orbital mission. And, and Borman was also really astute when it came to diplomacy. Um, he, he really saw his role as an astronaut um, as as uh, contributing national service to the United States within the midst of the Cold War. And um, he, he said he hadn't become an astronaut for you know, science or exploration, but really um, uh, service to his nation in the same way that you would if you were, were serving in the military. And, and part of the service to the nation that he was interested in was to try to uh, improve our image in, in the, with other countries and took it seriously as to how to do that presentation, not just... You know, this was a time uh, there was a novel, I think, in the late 50s called The Ugly American, which was uh, all which was a, then a very popular statement, which was about, you know, businessmen going abroad and behaving badly and, and, and giving a bad name to everybody uh, in America. So so uh, to counteract all that. And of course, there was all the bad press from the Vietnam War as well. Uh, another thing that was interesting in your book was how early the international bad press against the Vietnam War was. Um, you had the statistics, which I found fascinating, that USIA did um, to decide who were more popular, uh, the cosmonauts or the astronauts. And, they, they, and they, did it, they did it in Morocco and Nigeria. And the numbers were very interesting. So why don't you tell, tell about that? They said they did this to, to try to see what they should do about the situation. They took a poll. And what did the poll show them? The poll showed them that cosmonauts were far more Popular and what they said is both north and south of the Sahara, um, and and this was the case for a while, and and I think in large part because initially the United States did not send the astronauts on tour on these diplomatic tours, um, they sent spacecraft and they did other types of promotional events, exhibits, and distribution of pamphlets and books and all sorts of other things, films, but they weren't sending the astronauts abroad, um, and this changed um, in in the mid nineteen sixties, and and they started sending astronauts on these diplomatic tours. And I think that really raised the profile, not only of the program, but the individual astronauts themselves um, and, and affected that public opinion polling. But um, I think it's also worth noting that um, the Eisenhower administration and Kennedy administration um, in particular, really interested in public opinion, international public opinion, and invested quite a lot in, in polling and polling data. And Kennedy wanted the raw data all the time. He really was so curious about what international public opinion um, was and what would tell what what it would tell him about um, how the United States should be um, conducting itself in the world. Uh, and uh, public opinion polls about space exploration were part of this, but this was part of something much much larger in terms of. Um, this idea that the United States should be investing in international public polling, and then that should inform our foreign policies. Um, and you see that especially strongly with Kennedy. So he did these worldwide polling. And, and one thing that was somewhat clever about it, um, they would never directly have an American conducting these, the questionnaire. They would, they would hire local po polling firms and try to make sure that there was no clear uh, information that this poll was going to be used by the United States government. Um, and so uh, they went to efforts to try to make this relatively neutral. I think probably most people thought, you know, this poll is either coming from the Soviet Union or the United States. <laughs> um, but but uh, perhaps it was less clear, you know, which country it was serving. Well, the one in Nigeria, you said, I think it was 75% favored the cosmonauts over the astronauts. The astronauts only had 7% or something. It was really different. And you point out that that problem came from the civil rights um, issues that were going on in the 60s in the United States, uh, the very visible uh, problem, uh, race problem that we have in, the, in our country, and uh, that that really, really uh, hurt us. In fact, that we didn't look as good as South Africa did to, to, to some uh, countries in Africa, which, which was an amazing insight into what was going on then. And also why the politics back home put more attention onto the civil rights issues. Yes. And I think uh, that's uh, that, that 
that that point about South Africa came as quite a surprise to to some of the um, the diplomats at that time. I mean, like they they couldn't believe it. But um, many of the reports going back from the the embassies uh, were saying, you know, there's only so much we can do given what's going on in the United States when it comes to civil rights issues and and the Vietnam War. And um, and this is one of the lessons, or this is sort of one of the important elements of, of soft power, is that it. Um, it's really limited by um, sort of the entire image of a country. And just because space exploration might be interesting and might capture the attention of people, it can't wipe away the fact that um, there were civil rights injustices and um, injustices also in, in the Vietnam War. And there was a lot of critique for that internationally. Um, and civil rights especially resonated with people in Africa and um, and caused a lot of people to question, you know, what should our relationship to the United States be? And how can the United States be sending, selling its society as a model nation? Like, why should we pursue a political system and a social system um, in line with the United States when there are so many injustices in that country? And so um, that was that was part of the message that was, you know, that was um, being sent back to Washington, D.C. and saying that, you know, we can only do so much with the space program. There are these other issues. Um, you can't you know, chrome plate over them. And, and this is one of the limitations of, of soft power um, today in, and in general. Um, but uh, there was increased investment in, in these, these space public diplomacy programs um, with an effort to counteract that. But that was, um, that was a challenge that the United States was, was up against. Um, and I think also part of the reason why the the first lunar landing, um, I think it affected the the impact of the first lunar landing as well, or perhaps even the interest in, in carry on or the, the additional missions after the, the first mission. It's interesting, uh, too, uh, that the politicians back in the United States seem to listen to all this feedback um, because the PR campaign and the, the preparations for, you know, using the lunar landing, even though they were for political uses, did but by the idea that we had to make it as inclusive as possible, that this is something that humanity is achieving, not just Americans. Um, and, and, and several other, what you'd say, are very enlightened way of looking at the, you know, what we're contributing to the, to the world versus, you know, say American exceptionalism, which we are always focusing, focusing on, you know, so often in our history. Um, it was saying like, yes, uh, but we're doing this with the history of all the science which was done in your country, in your country, and you know everybody has contributed to this. I, I found that fascinating that they were listening. So why don't we take a look at some of the uh, overwhelming response to, there, there were two big PR campaigns, Apollo 8 and Apollo 11, Apollo 11 being even bigger, but Apollo 8 was when they first went and uh, orbited the moon and then came back again. And then, then there were, and that was only six months later was Apollo 11, and they had two other missions in between to test out moonwalking and so on. I mean, walking uh, in space and so on. So, so not too far apart in that time. So why don't we why don't we show some of those pictures across the world um, and the reaction? Yeah, this is from the French Seven tour in um, 1962, and this is when it stopped in the Philippines. You get a sense of the lines uh, for people to to go check out that spacecraft. Um, one thing that's important to note about this um, and is that the first satellite was 1957, and this was just 1962. So this is a really short timeline. This was a very, very brand new um, thing for people to see, to see a spacecraft. Um, it's sort of, it was just from the realm of science fiction almost. Um, so you can, you can get a better sense for why, why people were, were so eager to, to check it out when it visited their city. So this is an example of some of the the exhibits that the U.S. Information Agency uh, set up uh, during the 1960s, um, and uh, you can see in the caption there, uh, West Pakistan and Guatemala and Nigeria, um, and uh, there's an extensive number of, of these types of exhibits and film screenings and the distribution of, of pamphlets and working with, with local press as well to make sure all the missions were covered, Lo working with local TV stations um, to make sure that they were also covering 
American space achievements. Um, and uh, I'll note that the United States put extra effort into promoting its space program in countries where it had um, tracking stations. And Nigeria was one of those. And you, so you can see um, that image in, in Nigeria. They, they made a point of having lots of exhibits and lots of material related to the space program in those countries to ensure that they would be welcoming to um, the United States tracking program. Yeah, some of the decisions made as to where to go and where not to go and, and uh, you know, when to go and in which order and everything sounded like, uh, you know, the seating plan at a, at a dinner at the White House or something like that with a bunch of diplomats. You know, it's very, you know, <laughs> the most important decisions uh, are, are where people got seated and how they felt compared to the people around them. So um, quite, quite mm -hmm. interesting that that's taking place on a whole global scale. So next pictures or next picture. Yeah. So here's an example of the astronauts um, traveling internationally, and this was um, this was a tour that that traveled to both uh, Greece and Turkey, as well as a number of um, African nations. And this is um, this is them in Ethiopia showing some details of a Gemini helmet. And the next picture. And so this is similar. It's it's part of the preparation for the first moon landing, and so. The um, U.S. Information Agency and um, U.S. government more generally knew this was going to be one of the biggest events of the century, and um, it would be even bigger if they promoted it. And so they put a lot of work into getting people excited about the first lunar landing before it happened in July of 1969. Um, and this included sending a spacecraft around Europe. You can see it there. And the um, I believe this is the Apollo 8 command module, and then um, exhibits, an extensive array of exhibits and television programs. They even trained um, journalists um, in, from other countries. They brought them to the United States um, and uh, had them meet with NASA um, personnel and uh, to learn about the American space program firsthand um, so that they could bring that knowledge back to their respective countries when they were covering the mission. Um, they had souvenirs and all sorts of things, handouts. They 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 uh, they did. Um, it's just uh, it's hard to even sum it up, just because the scale of this public relations endeavor was was unprecedented and um, just extremely well thought through, quite expensive, and um, uh, sort of extensive programming in each country around the world. Yeah, what you said is well thought through. You know, they they would. One of the things I found interesting in your book was. They picked out the popular broadcasters in in different countries, and then made them, you know, somehow pulled them into it, and then brought them to to NASA and in Houston, showed them around, all that kind of thing, so that they would be the spokesman for the next five or six years in that country, and their popularity would wear off on America. Uh, exactly, and and that was an important part of the the approach was to. Um, to get people in other countries involved and make them <laughs> participants in a way. And so I, I spoke to one of them, um, Eric Tanberg, who was um, the Norwegian Walter Cronkite is, is the way yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I first learned about him. Uh, but he he was the space broadcaster. Um, and he, he told me about um, traveling throughout the United States, multiple NASA centers um, uh, to learn about the space program and the connections that he made there. And, and then he continued to... Um, be an important person when it came to uh, spaceflight within Norway and explaining um, what was going on with NASA throughout throughout the decades. Um, but they they also had another um, program called a Space Mobile Program, and this was a much smaller scale kind of endeavor where they had um, it was like a library on wheels except focused on space, uh, and they would train um, local lecturers often. And so they saw it important that the They'd have American space lecturers training local space lecturers um, then who could then connect with their communities, um, but also then continue this message of, you know, American accomplishments in spaceflight. All right. The next picture. So this this is from the Apollo 11 mission, um, the first lunar landing mission. And one thing that... Um, I love about this story is it really connects to these larger efforts to make the first moon landing a, a global event. Um, and it's, uh, it's very illustrative of the symbolism and the intentional symbolism to make this, this moon landing very, very inclusive. Um, and so this is the mission 
emblem from Apollo 11. Uh, these were designed by the crew, every mission emblem. Um, and sometimes they would get uh, help and feedback. But this one was done by Mike Collins, the command module pilot. Some of the important symbolism there, they decided not to put their names on it. Uh, and other other patches have the astronauts' names. They wanted this to be inclusive. They also decided to write Apollo 11 like that, as opposed to spelling out the word 11, because they didn't want it um, to be in English. They wanted people who spoke any language to know what it was and to be able to um, interpret it. And um, there's also symbolism of the, the olive branch suggesting that this is a peaceful mission. This is the audience uh, following the flight in in Korea. One of the things that the U.S. government did is they um, they worked with uh, local governments or groups um, to put up large screens outdoors. Um, so this is a this is at a time where uh, there's a huge increase in television sets around the world. But um, not everyone had a television set at this time. And then also some people wanted to watch this event in unison with a group of people. It was really it was really t the type of thing that people felt was a shared human experience and and. Um, not only the the awareness that people around the world were following the flight, but like the the sense that you get when you're in a big group of people doing something together. And so there were many of these large outdoor um, projectors um, and screens uh, set up so that that people could follow the flights in unison. And this is another example of some of the intentional symbolism that went into the first lunar landing mission. This is the plaque that was left um, on the moon uh, on the lunar module. Um, spacecraft and um, it involved the input of many people, the White House, the State Department, the USIA, Library of Congress, the Smithsonian. Um, it's very, very concise, but uh, a lot of people had their hand in this and um, in part because they wanted to clearly symbolize that this mission was for all humankind. So you see um, the depiction of the two um, hemispheres there on the earth, but no political boundaries. And that was an important part of the symbolism that this was, um, this was not about politics, that, that we live on one earth together was a lot of the messaging. Um, and you can see that that written in the text. Um, the, the AD, I always find this funny, uh, was seen as a, a, a clever way of sneaking God in. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, a little too clever. Uh, sort of <laughs> less universalist. But um, but you, then you still see Nixon's name on there. Um, so that still signals that this is um, from the United States. Um, but this uh, this was um, part of what was was planned by this symbolic activities committee that was formed to ensure that um, there were symbolic activities undertaken um, during the first lunar landing that would signal um, that the first moon landing was for all humankind and not just an American endeavor. So this was one of, of many gestures that they um, they planned for the mission. One of the interesting uh, small details in your book were the different characters that would contribute these words to different things. William Sapphire, the, the, the writer, was a young man working, uh, you know, in the writing portion of the, of the office at the time for Nixon. And also, you know, that Nelson Rockefeller was behind the open skies policy of Eisenhower. And, you know, that was interesting to find out who it was that originated different parts of the, of the program um, in, in their suggestions to the politicians that then moved on. So it's also nice to see if this was in color, uh, say right near the end uh, of the 60s is when life switched over to being in color. Um, so <laughs> for, those of, for those of you who weren't there then, that's, that was, that was a, almost as big a deal as when we landed on the moon. <laughs> so the next picture. So President Nixon called up the astronauts um, on the lunar surface, and uh, he said it was the most historic phone call um, in history. Uh, and part of um, what I like about this this element of the story is that he he talks about how significant or why the mission is so significant, and he he points to the fact that both that humans traveled farther than ever before, and they you know walked on um, the the surface of an, another celestial body for the first time in human history. But he also he also mentions that more people came together to watch this event than any moment in history and that this was a truly global event and half the world's population stopped what they were doing to follow this mission. Um, and over 500 um, million people watched it on their television sets, the largest audience 
um, ever around the globe. And so he he referenced that and and included it in the significance of the the first lunar landing, that it wasn't just about the astronauts traveling to the moon. It was also about what was happening on Earth because of that mission. And um, there's sort of a fun related story. When, when the astronauts returned to Earth, Buzz Aldrin, um, I believe it was Buzz Aldrin said to Neil Armstrong, after looking through all the the coverage and watching some of the television coverage in the newspapers, he said it looks like they were having a party on Earth, and I think we missed the whole thing. Uh, but the the idea is that the moon landing, yes, it did happen on the the moon, and that's part of the significance of Apollo eleven. But part of its significance is also what happened here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have another fun story about when uh, they were picking him up uh, uh, while out of the sea after they landed, um, and Nixon's on a boat. And Nixon seemed to be behaving like uh, like a teenage boy in his excitement and everything like that. And one doesn't hear those things about Nixon too often. So I thought that was nice. Yeah, he he really, really appreciated the astronauts and would get very, very excited about speaking with them. And um, uh, he thought they were great representations of the country. But at that landing, he was he was showing off his binoculars. And it's, it's a it's a funny story. There's the, the, the kind of the commentary that was remembered about how it impacted him um, is uh, Personally, yeah. it's sort of. Yeah, it's it's sort of a nice side of Nixon that you don't always see. So the next picture. Uh, so this is uh, another example of some of the um, people following the flight around the world. Um, and there's some some great stories about, you know, where people were setting up TVs or, or how they were able to follow the flight together um, through shop windows sometimes um, and uh, gathered in restaurants or at a gas station in Norway or or uh, reading the, the newspaper um, in, in places where they didn't have live coverage. The United States made sure to get film clips to places as quickly as possible, uh, would flew them in within a matter of hours um, so that they could be shown. So it was um, a lot of effort went into making sure that there would be these audiences uh, following the flight around the world. Well, it's an interesting part of the, the not the advent of television, but maybe its second or third decade, um, the way that it was used for these purposes. And I know in 73, I was studying in the Soviet Union and I was right in, in Moscow at the Kremlin. And right across from the Kremlin is uh, the, uh, the the big department store they call Gum, and uh, in the they, they had set up in the windows there for everybody that was going to the Kremlin to see Lenin and so on and so forth in the mausoleum. They had a whole bunch of colored TVs, and on the colored TV was Nixon and Brezhnev, um, you know, in in uh, in California at his ranch uh, because it was the year of détente, and so they were they were projecting those images right back to the Kremlin and and, and all around the world too. Um, so it was you, you saw a big crowd would get outside the the uh, thing to watch the television, even though it was just you know Brezhnev and Nixon at his house having lunch or whatever. So uh, this was much more exciting. So um, <laughs> the next picture. One of the things, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead. How this crowd is. This is in Mexico City, and this is the uh, the Apollo 11 crew at the center there, and they're uh, this motorcade uh, through Mexico City. So after their flight, um, Nixon asked them to to travel the world as his representatives and um, uh, to meet with foreign leaders and to to have these these motorcades, um, public events, meet with scientists, all sorts of things. And so the astronauts, over the course of two months, went to over 20 countries, um, and they were just extraordinarily warmly welcomed. Um, there was a lot of a lot of effort in the planning of the trip to make sure that they would be going to countries where they would be really warmly welcomed because part of the motivation for this would be that um, this would be covered in newspapers and um, it would displace headlines that had to do with the Vietnam War uh, right, right, on the cover right. of newspapers, <laughs> which would be good for the United States at that time. Uh, and I mean, there were a lot of benefits um, to this, this diplomatic tour. Um, and uh, one of the things that the astronaut said that I find really impactful is that um, they were quite surprised uh, by the response and they expected people to say, you know, congratulations, you did it, you went to the moon or you Americans went to the moon. But what they heard is that we did it and this sentiment that it was something that we had d- done together um, uh, as humans and that uh, people around the world felt like participants in that mission. And that was the thing that really impacted them um, during that diplomatic tour. And and that was an intentional uh, setup by the U.S. government and USIA to, to try to make everybody feel that way. I thought that was an interesting part of it because 
you can you can feel that way automatically, but you can also be be moved to to think that way. And there was a little bit of both. So there's a question that came in from the audience. That I'm going to ask uh, before we go on uh, because it's it's relevant here. You see this picture. Uh, the astronauts are are rock stars, uh, you know, dressed up in the local uh, garb and so on and so forth. So uh, the question was. Uh, most historians uh, obviously don't get to speak to anybody that they're studying, but you were able to talk to some of uh, the people who were involved in this process. And uh, the question was, were you starstruck by any of the people that you got to talk to? Did they strike you as rock stars still, um, even though they were, you know, world, world famous for, for what they did? That's the question. Um, well, they are uh, really incredibly talented people who have accomplished amazing things. And um, sometimes it can be intimidating to know what, you know, where to start or how to have a conversation. Um, but I've been, I've been really, really lucky and um, ha having the opportunity to speak to many of the Apollo astronauts. So I've, um, I've got to speak to everyone from the Apollo 11 crew in this picture here. Um, and uh, um, some of the multiple times, um, Mike Collins has just been, uh, extraordinarily helpful in, um, answering my questions and thinking through the topic. And, um, uh, as a curator at the, the Smithsonian, he was the, um, director of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum when it opened in, in 1976. And, um, so has an appreciation for, um, uh, the museum. And so I've got to, to, um, have quite a bit of interaction with him, um, since I've been at the Smithsonian, but it's, it's been, um, it's such a privilege to, to speak with all of them. I've also in this project had the opportunity to speak to other people who contributed to the program, which was, um, also just, just, a, just a wonderful opportunity. The timing of this project happened just in time because now it's, um, starting to be too late, but, uh, I, I got to speak to people who work for the U S information agency and exhibit design and, um, the science advisor from the USIA and then um, people internationally as well. Um, an artist in Japan told me about his work that was related to the moon landing. And so it's, um, it's been wonderful to, to speak with people and, and get their stories. And sometimes it can be um, a little intimidating, but the stories they have to share are so exciting that you, <laughs> you can't let intimidation hold you back. <laughs> well, you certainly didn't because uh, you brought all their stories alive. So uh, another part of what happened was that uh, some photographs uh, of the Earth from a different point of view have become extremely famous, one from Apollo 8 and then uh, one from Apollo 11, right? Or is that Exactly, so, yes. Uh, and Apollo 8 is the one that everyone knows as Earthrise, and the, the, the Apollo 11 is the one everyone knows as the blue marble, the, 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 where you have the whole disc. So uh, there we go. That's it. So 17, yeah, so this was the very last Apollo mission, the last time we went to the moon um, in December of 1972, and the astronauts were able to, to capture this extraordinary image. Wow. Did, they, did they plan to do it so that they would be able to get the entire, you know, like, it's like the full Earth, not the full moon, but the full Earth, you know, you, it's, you, you've got to be there at the right time to get that picture, but it wasn't really planned, was it? I, I don't believe they scheduled the timing of the mission um, based on based on that, but it was an opportunity that um, the Earth was not in shadow at all, which was um, which was quite lucky, um, and uh, it it really resonated with people extraordinarily well. Some of the timing of the the mission actually had to do with Nixon. <laughs> Nixon didn't want an Apollo mission to um, a potential disaster on Apollo mission to to mess up his reelection um, chances, and so. Um, this one got pushed till after the election. Um, so, uh, Is this the one? so I, which was the one that was right at Christmas because that had a big hit with the Pope among other, among other people. That was, it was at uh, eight, Apollo eight. That was Apollo eight. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they did it and, at Christmas. And, yeah. Exactly. And they read um, an address from outer space. They read um, Genesis uh, in their Christmas Eve address. Um, and as a way to, to connect with as many people um on the world as possible and not to not do something that was just in reference to Christmas, but something a bit more broad, uh, but also for the sort of the significance of that moment of being the first, um, first time humans traveled to the moon. Right. And took a look back at the earth. Yeah. Um, so we have only a little bit of time left, um, but we, and we have the questions done, but I, I, I think um, one of the things that was really valuable about your book was the PR, the diplomacy, the way that we did things and how effective it was. 
And why don't we use that method more often? You know, why is it that we keep forgetting that that's what works in the world? And I mean, it would seem like you could take some of those ideas and use it in our relationship with China, for example. So I know that this isn't your 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 uh, aim here with the book and everything, but if you could just say a little bit about, you know, I mean, what 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 that PR approach is, the focus of it, of course, was on in- inclusivity, but there were other focuses too, openness, um, to, to, and, and of course, focusing on openness contrasts our political system with closed systems. Um, but you know, our system is you know slightly closed too, <laughs> so so it's it's pretty it's pretty important to try to live up to the ideals we set up. But it's also important to say, from a totally practical point of view, this form of diplomacy, this kind of soft power, is far more powerful. Um, and, and, and you can't erase, as you said earlier, you can't erase, you can't go around doing exactly the opposite and, and, and tell everybody you're in favor of, of peace and harmony. I mean, that's what, what hurt the Soviet Union so much. But, but we could be a little bit closer to what we say. <laughs> that's, it's true. And um, I think when you look at the, the current situation in, in spaceflight, um, uh, there's, there's, I think, uh, a push and some interest in in um, collaborating with with China in the future, and there have been huge limitations up to this point that the United States cannot cooperate with China in space. Um, but uh, I know within the space community, there's some hope that um, that that will be reversed because it not only um, could help us uh, in when it comes to exploration and when it comes to science, um, they just returned some lunar samples and it would be fantastic you know, for um, American scientists to be able to compare those samples with the material that we collected during Apollo. But it's also important as an arm of diplomacy and, and to bring nations together. And so um, that's something that, you know, perhaps will occur um, uh, in the future. And I think that there's some hope. Um, but when it comes to, to soft power and investing in something like Apollo, I think often we remember Apollo as being very, very expensive. It was bold. And there are many things we, we can talk about. Um, and it was very expensive. But the entire cost of Apollo uh, was equivalent to about one year in Vietnam by the late 1960s. Um, and uh, when you think of it as a foreign relations program or a national security program, when you think about soft power in terms of national security, um, it I think it puts it into a, an important context in terms of um, not only how effective it can be, but it, it can also be like a, a very positive, relatively affordable investment for a country. Um, and it is essential that it that aligns with the other broader image of the of the country and um, sort of the values that the country is trying to purport or demonstrate. But um, I think Apollo is a is a wonderful example of um, what can be achieved when something like soft power is prioritized as part of a national agenda. Yes, and your book made that perfectly clear. I thought it was one of the great things to make clear in your book. Um, and it doesn't always cost as much as Apollo. I mean. In 1996, uh, um, China was sort of making noises about Taiwan having to unite with them and so on, because Hong Kong was about to and, and Macau was about to. And and uh, in order to put them off uh, that insistence, uh, they were given the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And that that was allowed, you know, and, and there were a lot of people against it because they said, oh, you shouldn't let a communist country uh, do such a thing and so on and so forth. But it certainly changed their behavior for the next 10 years uh, leading up to 2008. And although that, that wasn't an expensive decision, it was just using your soft power more intelligently about the situation. Um, so uh, I'm sure you and I hope that, that, that people will uh, in, in the, the State Department, well, not just in the State Department because they've been ignored for so long uh, recently, but, but in other places, um, realize the power uh, that American culture still has in spite of the fact that we've made lots and lots of mistakes and, and we have our own uh, civil rights issues that cause problems, but we still can do this, use these uh, openness. We're all working together uh, to help lead towards a government. We're going to get to a human civilization on this planet sometime in the next two or three centuries. It'd be useful to do it slightly intelligently on the way there. So thank you very much for making your contribution towards that. Um, And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us, Tito. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.